Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport discipline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back into the Hit It Podcast as we round out the 2023 season and what a season it has been. We have heard from so many great athletes, coaches, and ambassadors of our sport this season, which included Jay Bennett, Chris LaPointe, Erica Lang, Jimmy Seamers, Chet Raley, Ronnie Barton Bischoff, Miss America Grace Stinky, Carl Roberts, former NFL star David Akers, Allie Nicholson, John and Jack Travers, Connor Pagetto, and Brian Detrick. So it is only fitting this year that we cap off the year with the world slalom record holder, Nate Smith. In catching up with Nate, we discuss his most recent win at the Pan American Games where he took home the slalom gold medal. Then we recap his success on the Water Ski Pro Tour where he earned the top spot this year as tour champion. We also cover a lot of ground on what it potentially will take to run 43 off and Nate's approach in the slalom course. Additionally, towards the latter part of this episode, we get into the unbelievable percentages of Nate's consistency at 39 and a half off and 41 off passes. This is an episode you're not gonna wanna miss. So here's my interview with Nate Smith. Well, welcome back to the Hit It Podcast. I got a special guest here for you. Mr. Nate Smith, the world slalom record holder, joins me in the virtual studio. What's going on, Nate? Uh, not too much. Just kind of enjoying some rainy weather here in Florida over the last couple of days. So not really able to ski or uh, go flying. Yeah, well, and we're going to cover a lot of ground in this podcast because I know that off the water, you've been working on some hours with becoming a pilot and doing all of those things, but you've had an incredible season. Uh, we want to recap a little bit of that season, and we also want to talk about world records, 43 off, competition, all of those types of things in this podcast. So I am really, really excited. And I think the last tournament you ended the year on was the Pan Am games if i'm not mistaken and and you were down there uh tell us a little bit about that tournament yeah that was the last event of the year for me and you know for, for most skiers here in the north south america but i did win i did set a pan am record as well it's just 3 at 41 but you know it's a record that you know gets bumped up little by little every year but the event itself you know it's at the miranda's place down there in santiago chile so it's a site that we're familiar with but you know, being included in that event, we're just a four-person team. It was me, Anna Gay, Erica Lang, Regina Jayquest. So it's a four-person team that gets selected. But to me, it's one of the highest honors in water skiing here in the United States to go to the Pan Ams. It's kind of the real deal. Like, you go down there, you're treated like an Olympic athlete. It is one step just below the Olympics where teams or sports, I should say, get selected up from this event to be included in the next Olympics. So, you know, we have kind of our Pan Am village that and just everyone there to just take care of you from the second you land there in Santiago to the second that you leave the airport. So for me, it's one of the best tournaments in the world to ever get to go to. 
Well, that is really cool. And we got to see some of the pictures as they were floating around social media of the opening ceremonies and how big it is and how many people are involved. And there was also a little bit of buzz there online because you participated in in the trick event and the jump event. So now that I have you on the podcast, you've got to explain to everybody how you were three eventing at the Pan Am Games. Yeah, so I PP'd in two events, two of the three events that I skied in at Pan Am. I've never entered a slalom turn or a trick tournament or a jump tournament. So per the rules, you have to have a male three event skier and a female three event skier. So just the way the team kind of got put together, we had three females, Erica, Anna, Regina. So that just left me on the male side, which required me to at least suit up and go down the lake on a trick ski and jump ski. So, you know, I've ridden a trick ski around from time to time just for fun. It's been a long time since I have, but I've never been on jump skis. I've never been over the ramp or any of that. And even though the score might've said one meter or three feet, I did not actually go over the ramp. I did just go down the lake, rode past the ramp, waved at everybody. Everybody was cheering. It was, it was quite funny. In the trick of it, I rode down the lake, waved on the way back. I'm like, oh, let me try a little, you know, let me try a side slide or something. I did a side slide. That was fine. Did the reverse. That was fine. And sat there for a minute and decided to do an O, which I successfully came out of. But come to find out, it was out of time. So my first trick run ever, I got two tricks in time and one trick out of time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm surprised people weren't cheering. <clears throat> flip, flip, flip. <laughs> oh, no, I yeah. know. I, yeah, uh, it, it was fun. It was, you know, I... I I'm not a three eventer, so for me, it's quite embarrassing to go out there and look like a giraffe on water skiing, basically. But, you know, at the same time, everybody was more excited, I think, about seeing me do that, putting a helmet on and a jumpsuit and all that, than some of the other stuff going on. That is really, really cool. Well, you had an incredible season, and maybe we pick up here and we talk a little bit about the Water Ski Pro Tour. Uh, that that season was a long season, a grueling season, uh, but you come up on top of the Water Ski Pro Tour, a lot of events, a lot of European events, a lot of travel involved. Tell us a little bit about the format this year, because it seemed like from start to finish, you were very, very successful, but it, but it was a long year. It was. Um, you know, if you attend Mumba, that kind of gets your season started that first, second week of March, which means you need to be skiing probably the month before that. So you're looking at the end of January, early February, trying to get yourself back on the water and be in shape to go win a tournament. So basically you're looking at from February all the way down till, well, it's just two weeks ago that I was in Santiago. So um, pretty much a 10 month season. If you look at any other sport, it's not really that long. So trying to stay at a high level for that, period of time and not get distracted can be quite difficult at times it's not that you can't do it it's just you got to be able to stay focused and all of that but you know I did I started out the season well I went over to Moomba and I won that tournament I mean I think I won the first eight tournaments of the season I believe it was I have to look over at my notes but you know the, the season did start off strong it started out well you know the pro tour we you know I skied a handful of those tournaments actually I skied all but one tournament um, part of the pro tour this year and then skied a couple of tournaments in addition to that that were not part of the Pro Tour. But, you know, I was able to come out with the Pro Tour win as well this season, even with a couple of second places and third and fifth, I think, in there somewhere. So, yeah, and I'm looking at the standings there. I mean, obviously, you're on top and it's pretty cool to track that throughout the year with the leaderboard point standings. You ended up with 284 points right behind you, Freddie Winter with 272 and then Will Asher with uh, 193. It it has been incredible to watch the broadcast of the Water Ski Pro Tour throughout the season because 
for a lot of reasons, not only to keep up with how the point system is going throughout the year, but to watch these cuts into the final and to see how high they are. And we were talking offline just the other day. It's like, okay, we see a lot of really good 39s and but the cut is can be so high at 41, one mistake at one ball or two ball, and you may not make the cut. Tell us a little bit about the competition because it seems like there's just so many people now capable of contesting 41 and getting to the latter part of that pass. Yeah, I mean, when I first came on the scene, gosh, back in like 2010, 2011, you know, if you went and ran 39, you were safely into the finals of the tournament. That was not even a, a question. You were basically looking at seeding at that point, and guys were getting one and two at 41. You get the three ball, you're, you're probably top seed in winning the event. And now some of these events, three at 41 doesn't even get you into the finals. It's sometimes a runoff and sometimes just quite honestly not enough to get you there. So the level of skiing has definitely come up over the years. You know, I think everyone kind of chasing one another and trying to better themselves and, you know, trying to beat the next guy out there. But I've just really seen everyone fighting for that extra little buoy now versus us turning a, a buoy here or there because they think that's going to be safe to get in. And if you sit back in this sport, you know, like we talked offline a little bit was if you play defense, you're going to get beat. So you got to pretty much be playing offense all the time and be the guy to go out there and take that next step, put up the next biggest score and, you know, take the risk of, okay, if I turn this and get to the next buoy, I know I can win or I know I can get into the finals. But if I blow the tail here, yeah, I, you know, this is going to be a problem. And I'll use, you know, worlds for an example, I was going for the win and Freddie had 41. I did, if I stood up three, I think that gave me second place, I believe it was, but by falling a three ball, it put me all the way down to fifth place. So it's kind of a wow. you know risk reward situation there. You either go for it and all the marbles in, or um, you know you sit back, play it safe, and accept second. I'm not going to do that. So uh, yeah, I go for it all the time. Yeah, I want to talk, and we'll stay there for a little bit to talk about the psychology of staying on offense and and really how difficult that is once you're on top to to continue to push it because everybody's trying to catch up to you and chase you. We had. Erica Lang on the show not too long ago, and she was saying the same thing because I would ask her about different types of trick runs. I said, you know, do you have a trick run to make it into the finals or do you switch it up if somebody goes down and so you can take the win? And she was like, no, like my trick run is my mm -hmm. trick run. And I could break a world record if it's in the world tournament or if it's just at a weekend tournament because that's my run. She's just has a mindset of always being on offense. And I think that's what you're saying. When you came onto the scene, I mean, you exploded onto the scene. It's It's been a while now. I mean, it's been about 13 years that, that you yeah. have been on top. It's hard to believe that time goes that fast. But you were in a mode where you were looking up to a lot of in individuals. I believe at the time, Chris Parrish had the world record. So you're looking at him probably and going, well, what is it going to take for me to get there? Then you achieve the world record, which still stands, two and a half at 43, I believe. And we've, we'll, we'll go into the world record a little bit. But talk to us about you win a world tournament. You got the world record. Then it starts to be multiple titles. How do you stay motivated for this long at the top of your game? Well, I think, you know, it's a loaded question a little bit. You know, I, I think I've experienced that a little bit this year more than uh, in years past. You know, I came up a year last year that I didn't lose a tournament. So every tournament I entered, I won. And that was the first year that I've gone undefeated for an entire season. So for me, you know, it's a you know pat on the back for myself. 
and then you know I entered this tournament or this season winning the first six seven or eight tournaments um, I'd have to go back and look but then it, like you said you know the multiple titles kind of thing so you have to find a way to have that drive and I think you know like you mentioned with Erica she's out there competing against herself and that's no disrespect to the other girls that are out there but you know, Eric is kind of on another level and she does her thing. She wins, period. No questions asked. So she has that mentality and that confidence level to go out there and do her thing and she's going to win. So, you know, I think that's very similar to the way that I approach things as well, that, you know, not in, you know, overconfident state of mind, but if I go do my thing, I will win the tournament. It just, sure. that's just the way that I feel about it. You know, if I do what I want to do and I ski the way that I want to ski, 99% of the time that works out for me on my end and I'm out there competing against myself. You know, if the score is three at 41 and I run four at 41 for the win, I'm bummed that I didn't run 41. I want to go out there and run 41. So my challenge to me is competing against myself, even though, you know, the scores out there matter and all that, but you know, and I walk off the water, a win or a loss, I'm either disappointed in myself or, you know, happy for myself achieving goals for myself versus I guess, you know, hey, I beat this next guy or something like that. I want to go out and do my best. And we talked a little bit earlier that my first few years in Florida, when I brought my boat down here before I owned a house, I skied with Freddie and Karen. Freddie being a jumper um, and Karen being a slalom skier, I, I spent a lot of time with those guys and, you know, kind of understood or learned how to understand how they went about water skiing and why Freddie is so good at what he does for so long. And same goes for Karen because they sit there and they analyze every aspect of every every bit of water skiing. It doesn't matter what's you know the water, the buoys, the course, the engine, the zero off, the ramp, the ski, the you know every single detail in there. They make sure they put up on the board and they analyze everything and see what changed. And if something changed, why did it change? And you know if I did well, if I did worse, why did that occur? And they they just sit there and dig into it. So it kind of got me thinking a little bit differently. Just being the one coming from Indiana that skis in the ice and snow in a dry suit, not knowing anything, to starting to understand things a little bit. And then learning how Freddie attacks mentally towards the sport, I think, really helped me a lot as well. Yeah, well, what a sounding board, Freddie and Karen. I mean, they've been on the top for so long to uh, get some advice and wisdom on on how to stay there and how to continue to push the competition and achieve your goals. You talked about last year going undefeated, and I know off the water, you've been doing a lot to become a pilot and, and doing your thing, building your hours. Can you tell us a little bit about your goals on what you're doing off the water and how you're trying to balance that with time to get onto the water to continue to compete? Yeah, I mean, several years ago, I got my private pilot's license. Just a friend and I up in Indiana decided, hey, we should go and do this. And, you know, it would be fun, something to do. And we both started in on it. Mine got delayed a little bit because halfway through is when I hurt my, my ankle. That was the 2016 ski year. I, I hurt my ankle, couldn't fly for a little bit, kind of took a step back, bought a house in the same time, ended up finishing my private license like a year later down here in Florida, and then never really thought much of it, you know. But when COVID hit and we couldn't travel, you know, as a water skier, traveling and going to tournaments is our way of life and income and all that. So you know, I was looking for something, you know, what can I have in the back pocket? What what can I have to help me live the lifestyle that water skiing's given me uh, for the last 10 years and continue that if water skiing's not a part of my life in the future? Um, whether that's just by choice or injury or getting older, you know, I'll be 33 this month. So when COVID hit, I decided to go back to Indianapolis and went to a flight school up there for about a year and a half. 
and spent five plus days a week up in Indiana throughout the winter, but still managed to go to every tournament. I really thought that was going to put a damper on being able to travel, attending tournaments and all that. And somehow less skiing resulted in an undefeated season. So I, I really don't know how that all came about, but you know, that was more class stuff. So now I'm in a role of actually instructing and teaching people how to fly nice. and get their ratings here in Orlando. So I'm, a, I'm an instructor and, you know, I've been spending a lot of time in the plane teaching sun up, sun down, crazy long hours. And I think that, you know, my focus has gone to that a little bit, especially the second half of this season. You know, the season started off pretty strong. Middle of the season, I started to get a little bit burned out from if I wasn't skiing, I was working. If I wasn't working, I was skiing or traveling. I just never had time for myself. And, you know, I think skiing kind of took a little bit of a backseat for me the, the second half of the year. I think the people closest to me or the ones I ski with definitely noticed it. You know, I had comments towards me that, you know, I had to get myself in gear or, you know, what's going on or what's the problem, whatever. And I just, I think that kind of goes back to the comment you had about multiple titles kind of thing. I, I just felt that it was more of a been there, done that situation you know especially mm -hmm. the second half of this year with uh you know worlds like i just i i really had no motivation to, to even just drive over to jackson go ski and i think unfortunately that showed and you know it taught me a lesson to you know you, you're either in or you're out you want to go and compete at the highest level you better be practicing at the highest level and i just was not that the last part of this year but you know back to the flying thing still working on the hours i've got just a couple hundred more to go actually and then it turns into um, more of a professional job so i'm um, actually flying bigger planes whether that's airlines or corporate or private or whatever that might be we'll let that unfold when when it does but kind of the plan over the next probably within the next three to five months actually wow. will be that transition so it'll be interesting how this start of this season looks i think moomba is probably in in jeopardy for me big time this year but you know i'm hoping to keep masters on the table for, for myself this year that's kind of kind of the wintertime goal you never really know how things play out but we'll see sure sure there, there's a lot of moving parts there and to go week in and week out especially with all the events that you've seen this summer um, if that repeats itself next year just to keep up with the schedule is, is a big deal but i had no idea you're also instructing so that is that's incredible and that's an incredible responsibility off the water Let's talk a little bit about the world record. Okay, so the world record, two and a half at 43 off. Speaking, you mentioned the world tournament a couple times. You know, the, the really exciting part of that tournament was when Joel Pullen ran 41. And then when he came back in at 43, we saw exactly how short 43 off is when, when he, I, yeah. I believe, hit one ball and just flipped over the top of the ski. Uh, we were talking a little bit about it offline, and and your answer almost surprised me. You almost know what it's going to be like at one ball and how you roll into the gate when the rope is that short. Talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, nobody's an expert at 43. You know, I, I wouldn't even call myself that just because I've not really figured it out. I mean, every tournament you see either inside of one, just get one and a half, or go crashing cartwheels to two ball like I did at the Mastercraft tournament. but. Yeah, it's just so short, even compared to 41, that when I pull out and I'm on that gate glide, as that rope starts to become tight and I start that rolling for the gate, like I already know in my head how I'm hooking up and my angle approach to one, if I'm even going to get around one ball before I've even got to the first, you know, the left-hand gate ball. I know that sounds crazy, but it's just such a small window for error and that timing has to be so perfect on that gate pull out, the glide, turn in and swing an edge change into one that 
you know, everything at that point has to line up. You know, Regina kind of talked to me one time about that. Like every single star has to align to break a world record, you know, and she's done it more than anybody else out there. But you have to be on your game all your time. You've got to be perfect as you as a skier. The driver's got to be doing the best job that they can. And just the conditions have to be, you know, perfect. There's just so many different variables that go into it. It's just, it's so short that it's hard to figure out the timing. And if you start at 32 off, 43 is your sixth pass. Wow. And when you're out there on a ski set, you know what it's like by your, you know, your fifth, sixth pass, you're somewhat tired. And, you know, that's why I sometimes start at 35 just to have one less pass through that 41, 43. But I just, I think I need to sit down and think about it a little bit. Dane Meckler, who I ski with a lot, we knew each other since we were like four or five years old up uh, in the Midwest. You know, he lived in Cincinnati. I was in Indianapolis, but you know, he keeps sitting me down a little bit. It's like, dude, you need to, you need to go do this. Like, you can do it, go do it. And yeah. I just, I got to put my head to it and, and go out and actually figure it out because, you know, every time I go run 41 in practice and then I go around one and S turn it, you know, I, I look at him and I'm like, how can you run 41 shorten to the next loop and the wheels just fall off? Yeah. So to me, there's got to be an explanation. There's got to be some way to figure it out. I just think that you know, myself and maybe others don't spend the time doing it because we rarely get the time to spend on it like we do at 39 or 41. But yeah, it's just, it's such a crazy small window, you know, for anyone that even a, a long line or 15 off, 22 off skier makes that next shortening to 28. They're, holy smokes, I, I only got one there. You yeah, know, and imagine you know, it, that rope. It, and I was thinking about that because like the competition, like you're saying, the you know, whether it's four ball now or three ball at 41 to make it into the finals. And then let's say a score of 41, you, 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 you either get really deep, get a piece of five or six, you could potentially win it. If you run 41 and you secure one full buoy at 43, you're likely going to win it. But it's probably not too far off with what we're seeing happen at 41. Uh, there will probably be a final come up where maybe two, three, four people run 41 on the same day, forcing everybody to turn one ball at 43. You know, I've asked this question to a multiple of people at a really short line. I don't know what 43 off feels like. The, you know what 43 feels like, but I imagine that's a very difficult pass to even physically practice because it's so short. Well, it is. And, you know, going back to saying the timing has to be so critical or you go inside of one ball, that's something that rarely happens at any other pass. Like you don't see a guy go inside of one at 39 or 41. Typically at 43, that can happen pretty easily, depending on what you're trying to do. If you want to just secure one, I don't want to say it's easy, but I can get over and around one. No problem. And turn and get back. But when you want to commit to turning one ball, you've got to kind of change things a little bit because you have to commit to turning it and stretch and reach and your timing and speed has to be perfect. But just like we saw at 41 10 years ago, guys would run 39, they get to 41 and it'd be like a bonus pass. Like, oh, let me see what I can do. That's kind of how 43 is right now. You know, like you mentioned Joel Poland there at, at Worlds. I don't know how many times he's tried 43. I'm certain he has in practice, but it's not something he's ever thought about. But he swung into one ball and came up short. He, you know, his ski actually went inside of one, kind of clipped it, and then went out the front. So yeah. it just shows you how difficult it really is to get around it. But I think if we start seeing this 41 be run more in tournaments, it's going to force someone like myself or others to take stabs at 43. You know, when I tried 43 in, 
in practice, I do a six pass set. So if I run start at 32 and I run 41 going away from the starting end, I come back and try 43 once and go home. If I don't run 41 the first time, I run it coming back and go home. Yeah. So like I, I don't ever take more than six passes. But with that being said, I don't really try 43 that much. You know, usually it's just one shot. But as skiers, we don't do that. You know, it doesn't matter what skier you are, whether you're at 22 off, 35 off, 38, 39, 41. We typically try it a couple of times. If we fail, we try to figure out how to get through it. And I don't do that. And I don't think many others do that because it's the end of the set. You're tired and you're like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's kind of a bonus pass. So I think you're going to start seeing guys maybe take it a little more seriously and start to figure out what do I need to do to maybe turn one just in case. You know, we've seen that a couple of times this year where multiple of us have run 41 and around and we're either tied at ones or, you know, the deciding factor is trying to get to two. So we don't talk about can a skier, you know, get over to two or over to three. It's let's see if they can get out of one ball. Like that's usually the topic. Let's see if they can get out of one. You know, we're not talking two or three usually. Well, that's interesting. You know, like every skier's journey as the line gets shorter, you know, there's periods of time, for example, where a skier's learning 35 off, learns 35, and then we'll go to 38. And it seems like the more you try 38, the easier your 35s become. So it's kind of like, well, I don't mind spending too much time at 38 because it's actually making me better at 35. The, The issue probably at 43 is it is just so short. It is just so short and probably just so much different than 41 because percentage wise, two feet is is a huge deal at that line length. I, I don't know if the mentality has ever been, oh, let me work on 43 more. So 41 becomes easier. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that, actually. Yeah. It's just short. I mean, uh, like you said, it's just so dang short that I think it. I don't want to say it confuses a lot of people, but it, it puzzles people a little bit on, you know, how do you actually attack this? Because some of the stuff that you do through from 32 to, 30 to 41 off kind of goes out the window. Like, right. really, it's, it's a whole different game at 43. All that other stuff that you know goes out the window. And, you know, height comes into a factor as well. You take somebody like a Dane Meckler that's seen 43, you know, at the world's the previous one. He got around one. You know, he, he wanted a full one, but even as short as he is, yeah, he's not that short, but he's short compared to the majority of the top slalom skiers. And, you know, he was able to stretch and get on one ball. Now it is his onside turn, but he was able to get there. So you take somebody like a Parrish that's super tall, you know, has four more inches on top of me. How much does that really play a factor? Because I remember going back and watching Parrish, and he was probably technically the best slalom skier I've ever watched in my lifetime. Every single pass always looked the same. You know, when he broke the world record, he swung to one ball, came out of one like it was 35 off. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he got the two. It was his offside turn. It's short. I get it. He stood it up and threw the fist. But, you know, maybe that height does play a factor in some of that. But I don't know. I just got to figure out the timing and learn to turn one ball, I guess. Well, and, and what's so interesting, Nate, you, you've been so consistent for so long. And to be that consistent... You not only have to ski a lot of short line, but you've got to do it in variable conditions around the world. And you you talked a little bit about Masters. Uh, This year, the conditions were very variable. This was the first tournament that I had the opportunity to announce in a long, long time where we saw professional slalom skiers coming off the dock, not running an opener. Somehow, Mm -hmm. some way, you decide to take a 39 off tailwind, which, you know, it was so choppy 
that it was almost like your ankles were going to be in jeopardy if you if you hit the backside of the turn wrong, but the ski was just going to skip out and, and it would be a massive crash. Uh, you were able in that competition in the preliminary round to run 39 tail. Uh, I wanted to personally ask you, and, and we've discussed it a little bit after that tournament was over. I was just like, man, that was an incredible run. But um, I always wondered because, you know, you talk about Dane Meckler, Kale Burdick, yourself, Midwest skiers generally ski very good and rough water. Do you do you kind of look back at a tournament like that and be like, yeah, my upbringing of skiing in variable conditions might have helped me there in the Midwest? Yeah, I think so. You know, I've been down here in Florida. I've owned a house here seven years now and done the majority of my wintertime skiing here. But I think going back in the Midwest, skiing in the rough conditions, because, you know, when you get a nice day in the spring or fall, you go ski. It doesn't matter whether it's windy or whatever. If there's a reasonable day that there's not ice on the lake, you go and ski. And I know the lake that Dane grew up on, it was wide open. You know, if the wind went the wrong way, that place was a disaster. But he would go and ski. So I think for me as well, you know, we talk about doing that flight training up in Indiana. I spent two winters up there, 20 and 21. Well, that's also the season I went undefeated. So, you know, I yeah. went back home, went back to the roots, skied in the crap, skied in dry suits, skied in freezing cold water, um, all the way up, you know, for Masters even. You know, I was in a wetsuit before the day before Masters. It was so cold up there. But so I do think that plays a big factor because you come down here to Florida. And one of the things I remember Freddie Krueger telling me, and he may not even remember it, but. And he's a Midwest um, guy, too. <laughs> he, he is. He is. But, you know, one of the words, you know, he uses, you know, is being, you know, toughness. And he said one of the things that he noticed with me when I first started coming down there is every single morning I would text him and ask him what time we're skiing. It didn't matter if it was cold, if it was white cabin, whatever it was. I wanted to go ski. The days that they wouldn't ski, I ski. And, you know, I just remember one thing that stuck with me from him was don't ever lose that mentality. Don't ever lose the drive to not ski when the conditions are not favorable for you because a lot of other people will do that. And if you fall into that trap, you fall into the same trap as everybody else. So if you're the guy out there working those conditions, nobody else, is, you know, it kind of always stuck with me because it's so easy here in Florida that, you know, you get a, cool windy day in the, the winter time like yeah it'll be 80 and sunny tomorrow i'll just wait no go go ski because when when you need it it's going to come into hand you know into play and in, in handy for you and i think back looking at just a month or so ago at worlds the wind really came up for the the last little bit of us you know probably forced years or so at worlds and i was second to last off the dock rolling white caps i don't want to say i wasn't prepared for it but I wasn't as prepared as I would have been if I was coming from from the Midwest. You know, it's just harder, faster, bumpier water, you know, adverse conditions where it's just always so perfect here in Florida all the time. So, yeah, I mean, answering your question, I think that does play a huge role. I mean, you look at a Kale Burdick, you, you saw the guy even at Worlds go out there and, you know, kill it in some crazy conditions after only skiing a little bit in cold weather up there. It helps. Yeah. Um, no, and and, and yeah. Nate, I think that's a, a great lesson for everybody that's listening on this podcast is, you know, whether you aspire to be a regional champion, national champion, world champion, whatever that goal is, 
you know, I think throughout the years as the sport has grown and there's been multiple lake sites, you know, um, yeah, I ski on a site where there's three lakes and some people won't ski on lake two and three because they'll only ski on lake one when it's open. And then they'll only ski at 12 o'clock during the day if it's not windy. And there's so many variables <laughs> to even get a practice set. I often think, what do these people think about when they show up to the tournament? And, you know, you're you're dealing with the nerves, the tournament, and then you're going to get what you get. There's a certain level of confidence, not only in your own skiing, but like whatever I'm dealt, I'm dealt because I practiced there and now I'm ready for it. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100 percent. And, you know, the mentality going into that a tournament, whatever it might be, is I'm going to go do this. I'm going to win. I'm going to run the score that I want. And I think if you don't practice in those conditions or you are the one that says, oh, I'm going to ski on like one instead of like two or three, you know, like you said, when you get dealt those conditions, you know, we've seen it at regional tournaments and national tournaments that just so happens the windy week and we have bad conditions. And, you know, do you want to be the guy that can handle that? Or do you want to be the guy that shows up and be like, oh man, this is horrible. I, I, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. You want to walk down the dock watch the other guys shake in their boots and go out there and dominate and ski the way that you practice every day. So I'm not saying go ski in awful white caps. It's going to hurt right, you right. or you should ski in that every single day, but don't wait for the perfect water every single time because you're going to get dealt a bad situation and you know, you want to be, be able to, to handle it. So. Sure. And then know. even going back to the worlds, I know that at some point in there, the, the glare was a factor and people were adjusting sunglasses and trying to do those types of things. And, I mean, how many times do a lot of us get off of work and it's glary? I mean, and you just have yeah. to learn. I remember a long time ago, I was skiing with Daniel Alvarco when we were at uh, University of Louisiana Monroe, and it was just glary. And if you didn't ski, you didn't ski. Uh, but he actually credited to like, I think he was running, you know, 38 and 39 of like getting better at that pass because it caused him to like be more alert going into the sun, right? Mm -hmm. So there are some advantages. Now, we're not saying go scorch your eyes at sunset, you know, but there there are yeah. scenarios that pop up that, you know, you're just going to be dealt in adverse condition. And if you've been there, done that, there's going to be a lot of confidence. So, so Nate, I, I know you've said it before. 43 sounds like it's possible. It just needs to be figured out. I think it can be. I've been to three ball, right? So... You get to the one, you get to two, you get to the other side. I mean, why, why can't you do that two more times or three more times to get over to six? So I think it can be done, but I think a lot of things have to fall in place at the right time. You know, kind of as that Regina says, you know, stars have to align to make it happen. I don't know if there's any secret to it or some magic sauce. You're going to be, oh, if I figure this out, it's going to happen. I'm not sure that it's going to be that easy. But, you know, I, I think if you figure out the timing, I, I think, I, I really do think it can be done. I mean, one of these times you take a stab at it, you get the gate you want, you get the one you want, get over to two. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to go and hopefully swing to three and, and try to turn it. So I, I think it can be done. I'm not saying that I will do it or somebody will do it, but I, I think, I don't know. I just, I really believe that being to three ball proves that it, it can be done. You know, if, if it was anybody only gotten around one ball and that was it, eh, okay, maybe not, but you've been right, you've been left, you've been back to the right. Just got to do that a couple more times. And, so so and let me ask you it. this question, because I don't even know if you could think this fast at 43 because everything's happening so fast at 45. Let's say theoretically you make it out of one ball. You make it out of two ball. 
you're in your edge change going to three. It's looking good. Now you could stand up, get the world record, or you could go back to our earlier conversation and just play offense and try to turn it. What do you do? I think it depends how you come into it. You know, when I did break the world record and got that two and a half, I absolutely stood up. I mean, that was a full-blown stand-up, kind of turned away, tossed the handle. I wanted that, you know, I wanted two and a half. I want to be able to leave the window open a little bit to try and break it again. However, that has not happened now in um, exactly 10 years. It was September 7th of this year that would have been 10 years ago. So wow. I think a little bit of that's just not pressuring myself to go and do it. I think I need to try try to go do it. But it de- it depends how you you look at it, I guess. Personally, if I'm coming into three and I know that I can commit to that and go, I'm going. At, at this stage in the game, what, whatever I can get, whatever I can can take from it, I'm I'm going to go. There's not going to be any standing up from me. You know, if I do get to three ball sometime and somebody sees an ass turn, like, oh, he wasn't going to stand up. Well, there's probably a reason that I, you know, I, I knew that I was too fast or I wasn't going to make that turn or something. But same question goes to, and I've asked her, to Regina when she ran uh, five at 41 at the Malibu Open. She didn't have the greatest start, but somehow got back right. into great shape mid-pass, and she was in great shape coming into five. Why she didn't turn it and go to six, I have no idea. And I think even her, she's like, I definitely should have done that. But the big question is, but, you know, what What if? You know, what if I blow the tail? What if I drop the handle? What, you know, you just never know how many opportunities you're going to get. So, you know, for her, it was more of, I want to secure this. I want to make sure it's legit. I want to have this on the record and then try to go because you'd really be bummed out if you got that far and blew the tail out and oh absolutely yeah so you know the same goes for me but i guess with having it at two and a half falling at three ball means i just tied my own record so it's not like i missed out on anything other than just if i s turned i could have broke the record so i don't know that'd be a, a game time decision and Typically, I'm pretty, you know, I think one of the advantages I have is I'm very aware of my surroundings and what's going on. And I'm able to make, you know, on the fly changes very, very quickly. So I feel like I know what I'm going to see, you know, as I'm turning, if I turn two ball and head to three, I kind of know what I'll need to do or not do. I don't know if you remember the last time I did an S turn at three ball at 43, I went out the front. You may not even know that or may not remember that, but it was a Hancock tournament in 2016. I had a great one, great two. It just popped up on my uh, Facebook feed the other day as a, a memory, and I'm like, oh, that's good. And that's I went a, out to three and I turned. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I, I went back out, and the rope came tight. I was going to come back to it, and the rope came really tight. And it just pulled me right out of the front of the ski. Wow. So even S-turns are difficult um, Sure. at that line length, you know, as we saw with the ramp and the way at Travers Grand Prix as well. So another thing that I fault myself for a little bit, being being good at my surroundings and not taking note that there was a ramp there. So sure. you learn sure. something all the time. I mean, you know, when, when you lose, it's a failure. You lose from, uh, you know, you learn more from failures than you do from winning. That's kind of the way I look at it. I want to transition here and ask you about your personal goals, because it's not every day on the podcast, we we literally get to have the conversation about the greatest of all time. And I know that uh, later in his life, Andy Mapple was influential to you. Obviously, Andy, with his 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 win totals, his tallies, and then his master's wins, it depends how you want to look at it. But I mean, Nate, you're looking at year, what are we on, 13 of, of just absolute dominance. And 
what are you shooting for now? Because I remember those conversations and I, and there's a really good documentary of you uh, citing, you know, like Andy and those types of things. And we were talking about chasing those goals and are those goals still in the same to chase the win total of Andy Mapple and also go for the masters, I guess, uh, 13 masters titles that he had. It's on the horizon. It's definitely a number that's in my head. I know that that that's what is, the best that the world's ever seen in water skiing. You know, 14 Moomba titles, 14 master titles, and then it's 168 pro wins. There's a number out there that somebody said 167. I've seen 168. Whatever it is, it's a lot. I'm at 88. So there's a long way to go for that. But those are all numbers that are in my head. Those are all numbers that I'd like to, I don't want to chase, but I want to see where things end up with that because that's kind of the the level of the best that ever walked this planet in water skiing if you want to join that then that's where you have to be um and andy was so dominant for so long but you know some people do forget there were a couple years there that he got knocked down a little bit you know there were a couple year period that he was not on the podium not winning tournaments you know people have things that change in life a little bit but as for me I'd like to break the record again. I want, to, I want to get three, whether that means three or more than three. I do want to break the record again. And I just want to, I want to ski for myself. Sure. I want to go out there and compete and do the best that I can, like we talked about earlier. You know, if I can go out there and execute what I think I can do and know how to do, to me, that almost means more. So just kind of going out there and proving to myself that what I do in practice, I can go out and do when the pressure's on and the time matters. So to me, it's not really about beating anyone. But, you know, I look at these numbers and I, I, I want to join Andy in that, that 14 sure. Masters title. I'm at seven, halfway there. So he started a lot long, younger age, I think. I don't know when he won his first Masters, but it was probably well before I did. And the same thing with the Moomba. I've got six of those. And then you start looking into, you know, one that I'll toot my own horn over Andy on is 206.41 offs. Wow. So... So when when was the first year you ran 41? You remember? 2010. 2010. Yeah, 2010. So from 2010 to 2023, 206 41s you ran in competition? Yep. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, I've got, I, a lot of people kind of know this, but, you know, what I'm looking at over on this other screen is I've got a couple of spreadsheets with, you know, basically all the tournaments I've ever skied. I keep track of the date, the tournament the driver, the boat, and what my scores were and who I competed for neck and back, whether it was for first or second or who won the tournament or whatever. So, you know, I, I kind of look over here a little bit at these stats, I guess. Since 2011 is when I started keeping track of every single tournament. Every round I've skied, this includes every single tournament round in any sanctioned event, I've run 32% of 41. So 206 out of 679. And 92% of 39, 621 of 679. You know, you go across that to the, the pro wins of 88. This is where I'd like to compare to Andy a little bit is, you know, how many tournaments did he enter versus how many did he win? Sure. Because I've entered, 100, I've entered 127 tournaments, pro events. I've won 88 of those. And I've been on the podium one through third, 112 of those tournaments. Wow. So that's where I feel that I may have a little bit of upper hand on that. But again, not taking anything away from Andy because, you know, that's all self-serving stuff right there. He did it at these master's events with other competitors and all that, you know, 
masters Moomba. So, but yeah, I, I keep track of all that stuff. People always ask, well, how do you know how many 41s? How do you know this? I've got it over here in a couple of different spreadsheets, every single tournament placement, boat driver score, all that stuff. So, so yeah, nobody really is... keeps track of that stuff. No. And it's, it's great. Let me, let me reference. And if our listeners haven't listened to this podcast, we had David Akers on the podcast and David Akers is the one of the most consistent field goal kickers in NFL history. In fact, going back, I think it was his first year with the Eagles. And I asked him about this. He was 89% on the season. I mean, that's a lot of field goals to be that high. And I asked him how that translates to skiing and how he looks at it. And I would say, just like an NFL field goal kicker is looking at their percentage, you're almost in that same category as competing against the spreadsheet because you know if those percentages start to drop, it's either one thing is something in your skiing or B, the competition's really picked up, you know, and you weren't anticipating, you know, next year everybody could be running 41, let's say. And there could be a little blip in that mm -hmm. spreadsheet. But the fact that you have that much data over that span of time shows the level of consistency. And are you trying to get to a percentage of, let's say, if I'm 90% of, of 39s or better, can I move that percentage to 41 and be 90% of the time every time I try 41? Kind of looking at it a little bit, you know, I look at 2021 where I skied in 51 tournament rounds and I ran 39 51 times. Okay. So I was 100% on 39. That, that includes every single uh, tournament. Well, if we move over to the next column of those 51 rounds, I ran 41 25 of those, which is 49%. So it was a coin out flip of all the tournaments. You were going to run 41. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So, you know, it does correlate a little bit over the 39s versus the 41s, you know, as I look down this just a little bit. Um, but, you know, there's some years that 39s are down a little bit and the 41 stays the same. So 2021 was the highest percentage I had for the 41s, you know, looking back at everything. But, you know, I also don't ski as many tournament rounds as I used to. Looking back at 2011, 12, 13, I was skiing in the 70s, like 70 plus tournament rounds a year. Now we're looking at, you know, 40s and 50s, just I think focusing more on pro events versus chasing record tournaments, driving a truck or motorhome around the country, just stopping in wherever. So yeah, it correlates a little bit to the, the 41 percentage, I think. Well, um, and that, that, but, you know, you, that, that, that percentage is a telling story of our 43 conversation, right? Because if you're a hundred percent on the season at 39s and then that same season, every time you shorten to 41, you're 49%. So basically a, a 50-50 chance that you're going to run 41. And then we yeah. go into the conversation about 43. You had a, of, of the 50% that you ran at 41, you saw 43 a lot, but yeah. it's such a difficult pass. It goes down to maybe an S turn at one ball or over to two. Yeah. I mean, my, I, I would have to look back at the scores, but just on here, I have like the best score of that season for each year. And one and a half at 43 was my best score on that year that we're talking about. So yeah, I never turned two. I never went to three, never got a full two or anything like that. Wow. So, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that's incre That speaks a lot for how difficult it, 43 is. Well, and that's going back, like I said, you know, we talk about shortening from whatever line link to the next one. People don't generally 
not get around one. 43 is the first loop that you go, holy crap, like, I may not get around one ball. The Joel Pollen example, you know, in his mind, I don't think he ever thought he was going to go inside of one ball there. I mean, he may have been overly excited and amped up and all that. I, I get it. You know, you ran 41 at the world, so, but it just shows you how short it is, how quickly there's, you know, you run 41, 49% of the rounds you ski in, and then you don't get past one ball. Sure. So we talked a little no, bit the about wheels this. fall off. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about this out offline. There was a really good podcast that came out with uh, uh, Trent Finlinson and uh, Matteo Lazari and Marcus Brown, and they were just theoretically kind of batting the idea around what happened if it world record was, you know, we weren't really thinking about the world record. We were just thinking about instead of 43, go to 42. And you wonder at 42, if there was a mid loop, for example, how that would maybe change your spreadsheet. You know, would we see you go from 100% on the season at 39s to 50% at 41s? And then if, if, if there was a 42 loop, maybe 25% of the times we'd see you run 42? I, I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think it would definitely change the game a little bit. It would keep the guys from just not getting one. I think it would kind of put you in the middle of that pass a little bit. Like, okay, rather than just getting one or inside of one, you're going to get two, three, four, something like that. It's going to be difficult for sure, but I think that's a pass that you could have some competition. I mean, like we said at 43, it's either one or nothing or maybe get the two, but 42 off, I think you could definitely get down the line a little bit. And, you know, there are so many different ideas and thoughts 10 years ago, over the last 10 years, basically. And I, we discussed this a bit, like, changing the gates, you know, having a, a wider gate or you can go from here to here or wherever that might be. And, you know, I was really against it because I didn't have the world record and I wanted to compete, win and break a record without an asterisk next to my name. I'm going to do it on the course that everybody else did. Now I'm a little more open to something like that. You know, maybe we have a 42 off loop for this tournament, that tournament, whatever. But if you ski the 42 off loop, you can't break a world record. Like you have to do it the old traditional way or you know, something similar to that, if, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Well, the, and there's one record I wanted to get your take on be, before we, we come to our conclusion, and that's the course record at Robin Lake that Chris <laughs> Parrish still has at four buoys at 41 off since 2006, I believe. You've had a lot of looks at three balls, some explosions into four. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of yeah. things play out there. Tell us a little bit about that record, because that may be one of the longest standing records that still exist that uh, no one's been able to tackle yet. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot. It's almost 20 years now. I, I I thought it was 2005. It could be six. It I don't could remember, be 2005. But, you know, I, we're getting close to, yeah. to 20 years. Yeah. It's pretty cool that Chris still holds that record. I know he's proud of it, and it's pretty impressive. I don't really have any reasoning behind it. You know, one of my theories is the start dock used to be at the other end of the lake. So you started at um, the beach end versus the, uh, the other end of the lake. So 41 would have come the other direction. I'm assuming that's the way he ran it. I can't confirm that he did. I would have to go back and watch video or try and find it. So that's one theory I have that, you know, maybe it was just better from that end or, you know, he got a better look, better start. I've been over to four a little bit, but the trouble is, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see what the score was in front of him when he ran that four at 41. Mm. Like, was it yeah. necessary for him to go for that? Or was he the only guy in 41 and he just got to, you know, get a, get a look and let it rip kind of thing? 
for us, a lot of times, or when I leave the dock, it's two or three at 41 that I've got to get to. So it's kind of a tiptoe mode through all of that before you get to four. Sure. And I think, you know, maybe if you have an opportunity to not have that tiptoe, you know, really open it up and commit to it and ski it, I think you can get past it there. Or I think you and I talked as well. I'd be really interested in trying to ski from the other end. Yeah. But then, then you take the opportunity, you're doing something different than every single skier on that lake. So sure. if it goes bad for you, then you're like, ah, oh, crap, well, that, that sucked. That didn't work. So I don't know. I, I debated with Dane a little bit about starting at 35 just to get a look from the other way. But that lake, you never know what you're getting. I mean, you watch this year. I know you, you got the bird's eye view of it. But, you know, I tied Will, went out in a runoff. I fell at, what was it, two? two or two and a half, whatever it was at 41. Yeah. I can't remember now. And basically, or at 39 it is, I'm swimming in basically like, you know, good for Will. That's, you know, great, great job for Will. And I'm climbing up on the pavilion, like, you know, I'll take second, whatever. That's all right. I feel good about it. And here comes Will and stands up two ball. I don't say all he had to do was get a over to 339 but that's all he had to do and it didn't work out so yeah so many things in that lake and it, it's a great place to ski it's just it's tough like it, it's yeah. very challenging and you just never when, when you kind of sit back and relax or you know again that defense mode like it makes it it makes it difficult and i think that might have been just what happened with will i talked to him a little bit about it and he's like you know i when you went down i i kind of freaked out. I'm like, whoa, it's, you know, this is, this is my time to shine. This is mine now. And sometimes you just get a little over amped up about it maybe and, and mess up. So going back into the 41 thing, like, I think that end is somewhat challenging. I don't know why, but I think it's tougher. So that's what questions me about taking 39 that direction is Will and I both had a tough time to 39 start there. So do I risk that to try 41 from the other end or just stick with what works yeah. and maybe one day I get past that four ball. You know, I, I, I don't know. I would love to, um, I'd love to try and break that record. I mean, I ski in conditions. I, I make my leg chopped up and all that, but apparently it's just, it's just not the different. same. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just not yeah. the same. Well, I, I would like to ask you this uh, question. It's really for you to finish the statement, but the statement is I water ski because. I water ski because I enjoy it. And it makes you, or it doesn't make you, but it allows you to travel around the world and meet new people. And, you know, I've made a lot of really, really good friends around the world, around the country. Um, I feel like there's not a city that I can fly into and not text someone or call someone and say, hey, like, I'm in town for a day. You want to meet up for lunch or meet for dinner? Or can I come take a ski ride? And I think that's very unique. I, I, I don't think there's really anywhere, any other sport in the world that we have that tight knit family that somebody reaches out to me. You say you're in Orlando for the, the week and you shoot me a text. Hey, you mind if I come ski or crash at your place for a night? Yeah, sure. No problem. That doesn't really happen in other sports, you know, especially with professional athletes. Like I can't, I can't go text Peyton Manning and say, Hey, I uh, come in town. Can we come ski or can we go, come hang out or whatever? So, you know, for me, I, I think it's just, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge of trying to become better every day. And just the time you spend with family and friends on the water and having a house here in Florida, I've had so many people come visit and ski and hang out and laugh and smile. And so for me, 
my purpose is to enjoy it with you know friends and family on the water that's that's the big reason that's awesome well nate if people want to reach out to you or find you i know that you're super busy on and off the water but where can they get in touch with you yeah i mean any anywhere through social media i must admit i'm pretty terrible at re- reading so i get so many messages sometimes through instagram or facebook but um, through Facebook Messenger or um, you know Instagram as well. Everything is Nate Smith forty three. Um, my email is nate at nate smith forty three dot com. That might be a better way to reach out to me because I do go through and look at emails. Sometimes I get so many spam things through social media, it's tough. But um, yeah, you know, an email or uh, something through social media, and I'll try to get through and be better about you know reading messages. Sometimes, sometimes it's just hard being so busy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nate Smith, this or come, been... or come find me in uh, in Winter Garden, Florida. Th- there you go. Lake, there Lake you go. Loper. That's where I'm at. <laughs> this has been incredible, and I think anyone who listens to this podcast and gets to hear the mentality in which you approach the slalom course, and then also that was awesome. I wasn't expecting that you were going to pull up the spreadsheet and we just started reading off percentages, <laughs> but that yeah. that really shows kind of the roadmap of what it takes when you're you're in the position that you're in trying to chase a win total of Andy Mapple or something. What does that take? What does that look like? And to kind of lay out that blueprint it was incredible. So we thank you for that. And I'm mm-hmm. sure we're going to have you back on at some point on the Hit It podcast. So thank you so much. Yep. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it. Sounds good. And we're signing off. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening and come back for future episodes of the Hit It Podcast as we catch up with current stars and legends of the sport. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida, and don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate this podcast. We'll see you next time.